0: Hello, we the people. This is Carmela Ciliberti. Thank you for joining me. This week in Harrisburg, Democrat state lawmakers held a joint Senate and Representative Policy Committee hearing on the deceptive practices of crisis pregnancy centers in Pennsylvania. These lawmakers and those giving testimony showed not only a complete lack of respect for the work of crisis pregnancy centers in our Commonwealth, but a total disregard for women and their unborn children. Throughout the hearing, it was evident that not one of the participants ever stopped to consider the welfare of both parties involved in a pregnancy. This led me to ask some questions. Are we teaching our youth to respect themselves and their ability to bring forth life into the world? Are we teaching our youth how to moderate their desires? Are they taught to value self-control? Are our youth aware of their deeply embedded biological drive to care for and protect offspring? Are they made aware of the emotional consequences suffered when they terminate life? If this recent Democrat hearing is any indication... We are not modeling these values to our youth. I will play some of the highlights of the hearing later in the show, but before we dive in, let us review some of the basics surrounding pregnancy. Do you remember the reproductive stages from health ed? Of course, it all starts with an egg and a sperm. During ovulation, an egg is released from an ovary and into the fallopian tube. There is a 12 to 24 hour period during which the egg can be fertilized. After that time, the egg begins to deteriorate and fertilization is no longer possible. Fertilization or conception can take place up to six days after intercourse because sperm can survive for six days in the uterus and fallopian tubes. Should conception take place, over the course of six days, the fertilized egg will move through the fallopian tube and into the uterus, attaching to the lining of the uterus. This stage is called implantation and is the point at which the medical community defines as the start of pregnancy. As we're all familiar with, there are several ways to prevent pregnancy. Short-acting hormonal birth control, or the pill, which stops ovulation. Long-term reversible birth control, an IUD, which prevents sperm from entering the uterus and traveling to the fallopian tubes one-time barrier conception, preventing sperm from entering into the uterus, or permanent contraception, including tubal ligation and vasectomies. There is also emergency contraception, known as the morning-after pill, that prevents ovulation and may also prevent a fertilized egg from implanting. However, it is ineffective after implantation and therefore is not considered an abortion pill. Before we move on to discuss methods of terminating pregnancy, let us spend a moment on fetal development, specifically fetal pain. At what point can the unborn feel pain? According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the human fetus does not have the capacity to experience pain until after viability, which is approximately 24 weeks of gestation. However, this view has been challenged in the medical community. In 2019, a neuroscientist, Stuart Darbyshire, and physician assistant, John Bachman, who are on opposite ends of the abortion debate, co-authored the study, Reconsidering Fetal Pain, which was published in the Journal of Medical Ethics. What makes their study particularly interesting is that Darbyshire co-wrote one of the two studies the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists cites against fetal pain. He is on record in the British Medical Journal, calling fetal pain a misnomer and a shoddy sentimental argument. He's written against the existence of fetal pain since 1994. But Derbyshire changed his position in response to a growing body of evidence and now postulates that fetal pain can be experienced from as early as 12 weeks. And of course, 12 weeks is significantly earlier in development than the previously assumed 24 weeks. Both he and Bachman argue that abortions before 13 weeks gestation do not involve any meaningful likelihood of pain for the fetus. With this in mind, the authors address fetal pain during therapeutic intervention and also abortion. They say, To our knowledge, all clinicians or surgeons working with fetal patients, meaning babies in the womb, Advocate the use of fetal anesthesia and pain relief as standard practice. While further studies might be welcome to address the optimal procedures necessary to improve outcomes, there is consensus that the use of fetal anesthesia and pain relief improves maternal and fetal cardiovascular stability, provides the necessary immobility of the fetus, and prevents a dangerous fetal psychological reaction or stress response to the surgery. Currently, therefore, we are not aware of any procedures where invasive fetal intervention proceeds without anesthesia or pain relief, except for abortion. The lack of evidence based for fetal anesthesia and pain relief, however, and the need for clinicians to use their professional judgment means it is theoretically possible that a surgeon or medical team will judge anesthesia or pain relief as not in the best interest of their fetal patient. In such a hypothetical case, the fetus will feel pain if fetal pain is possible. For therapeutic procedures, such pain can be ethically offset. The principle of non-malfeasance implies we should first of all do no harm but pain can be acceptable if the inflicted pain is part of a good-faith effort to save or improve the life of the patient. This is the case with therapeutic fetal surgery and with other invasive procedures, such as blood transfusions and the use of instruments for delivery aimed at supporting fetal or infant life. Therefore, while surgeons and medical teams might be minded to consider fetal pain, and all the evidence suggests they clearly are, the possibility of fetal pain is not a reason to change current medical practice surrounding fetal surgery or other invasive procedures designed to preserve or enhance fetal life. Abortion is different, they continue, and they say it's different for at least two reasons. First, abortion may prevent future suffering that results from being born in a state of painful physical disability. But an abortion is not designed to preserve or enhance ongoing fetal life. In the cases where little or no disability is expected, there is little or no future benefit to the fetus from the pain they might experience. Second, While all the evidence suggests that surgeons performing therapeutic fetal interventions routinely consider pain relief for the fetus, surgeons performing abortions have their focus on the pregnant woman as their patient. Consequently, they more rarely consider fetal pain relief during the preparation and execution of abortion. Whether or not the fetus feels pain, therefore, is relevant to current medical practice surrounding abortion and could motivate changes in practice. The article continues, We disagree as to exactly how the encouragement to consider fetal pain relief might be implemented for the above procedures. One of us essentially believes that the momentary interest of the fetus as it leaves this life can be accommodated as part of a humane approach to abortion. The clinical team and the pregnant woman can consider whether fetal pain relief makes sense based on the clinical requirements for the abortion, the age of the fetus, and the conscience of the parties involved. The other author essentially believes that abortion is inherently violent and may subject the fetus to unnecessary pain and distress after the first trimester. Fetal pain relief An anesthesia should therefore be standard for abortions in the second trimester, especially after 18 weeks when there is good evidence for a functional connection from the periphery and into the brain. Now I ask you, have you ever heard pro-abortionists discuss fetal pain? Has it even been a consideration? I haven't. In fact, I spent some time on Planned Parenthood's website and couldn't find a thing about it. They leave out every bit of these details, every question that could surround this issue. It's not at all addressed. And just as a reminder, abortions are legal through the 23rd week in Pennsylvania. So not only are we taking life, we may very well be torturing those lives. With that truly horrific thought in mind, let's review the methods that are available for terminating a pregnancy. Medical abortions can be conducted up to 11 weeks, gestation, and it consists of taking two drugs to terminate pregnancy. The first drug is administered orally, mifeprestone. It blocks the hormone progesterone, causing the lining of the uterus to thin and prevents the embryo from staying implanted and growing. It cuts off nutrients and oxygen supply from the mother. The second drug administered orally is misoprostol, This causes the uterus to contract and expel the embryo. Keep in mind that this procedure is permitted up to 11 weeks. It is at the ninth week that the embryo is then considered a fetus. The fetus is able to grasp and can suck his thumb. Fingerprints are already visible in the skin. In addition to being able to sense touch, the fetus now, they believe, can sense pain. At week 12, the fetus sleeps and awakens. Prior to taking the second drug, which forces a miscarriage, it is possible to stop the effects of misafristone through the off-label administration of progesterone. Surgical abortions are typically performed after 11 weeks, and there are two kinds. Vacuum aspiration, which removes the pregnancy by suction, is performed between 11 and 14 weeks. There is no requirement to anesthetize or provide pain relief to the fetus, and the baby is essentially alive at the time of the procedure. Forgive the continued graphic nature of this podcast, but I think it's important that we really look at the facts of what we're discussing before we listen to some of this commentary and the, and the testimony that occurred in Harrisburg. So vacuum aspiration is done just as it sounds. A tube, a plastic tube, is inserted into the uterus, and the baby, the fetus, is sucked out of the uterus. And depending on the stage, you know, how late uh, development has occurred, uh, the baby is sucked out, in some instances, piece by piece. And keep in mind, at weeks 13 and 14, uh, the mother can feel energetic movement of the baby, hair is now visible on the scalp, and they can determine gender of the child. I just can't imagine a woman walking into this scenario and not having all the information available, and then being put in the scenario with no turning back. I mean, God forbid she actually sees the results of the procedure, and not only that, what does it say for the surgeon performing the procedure? How far detached from life, from reality, are these individuals that perform these procedures? It's really gut-wrenching to me. Uh, but we'll, we'll continue. The second method of abortion is dilation and evacuation, also called a DNA. And it's performed typically from the 15th week Through the 23rd week um, of pregnancy in Pennsylvania, that's where it ends, unless it's life of the mother, rape, or incest. So prior to 20 weeks, the baby is alive at the time of procedure. Again, there is no requirement to anesthetize or provide pain relief. After the 20-week mark, the baby is starved of vital nutrients and oxygen, again, using a dose of oral mifeprestone. Alternately, digoxin will be injected in the amniotic fluid or into the baby directly, causing cardiac arrest. At that point then, again, this is after 20 weeks, they confirm that the fetus has passed, and then they'll perform the evacuation procedure, removing the fetus piece by piece using narrow forceps. Again, just a truly barbaric procedure in my mind. And think of how far developed that infant is, or technically the fetus is. At 16 weeks, it is 8 to 10 inches in length. At 18 weeks, the ears are functioning and the baby can hear his or her mother's voice. A baby born prematurely at week 22 has a chance of survival with medical intervention. With all this in mind, let us now turn to some excerpts of testimony from the recent hearing.
1: I am State Senator Katie Muth. I am our uh caucus's policy chair, and I uh, represent Senate District 44, which is parts of Chester, Berks, and Montgomery counties. And uh, as I said, this is our fourth hearing uh, partnering with the House of uh, the State uh, House's Democratic Policy Committee. So we've been doing these across the state, just trying to get the public more aware of what's still legal in Pennsylvania and barriers that we have to overcome still, as well as the lay of the land relative to what kind of care and um, is, is available to women, but also uh, today specifically is a different topic about um, crisis pregnancy centers or what we call anti-abortion um, clinics, and I think this will be a one of the best so far in my humble opinion.
0: Well, isn't she upbeat on this terribly grim topic? I have to tell you, I, I've struggled making this podcast because of the content, and it's just deeply disturbing to me. And even more disturbing is listening to how these women, in particular, and the men that sit there and bob their heads, uh, address the issue. I'm just appalled. But we'll continue. We'll now turn to Representative Schusterman and hear her words of wisdom on the topic.
2: Obviously, as the debate regarding abortion access becomes more frequent, In Harrisburg, it becomes increasingly apparent that many of my colleagues do not really understand that pregnancy is a complicated biological process that requires serious medical attention. Planned or not, a pregnant person needs
0: access. Hang on, hang on. Did you catch that? Not a pregnant woman. No, no, no. A pregnant person. So let's get this straight. Pro-lifers don't understand that pregnancy is a complex biological process, yet this poop can't bring herself to say pregnant woman. No, no, it's a pregnant person because men can get pregnant too. We'll continue.
2: Politically fueled rhetoric, often about morals and quote unquote religion, fails to prioritize the needs of the individual experiencing the pregnancy.
0: And there you have it, Representative Schusterman saying the needs of the individual experiencing the pregnancy. She completely ignores the fact that there are two lives involved.
2: During my research... In this process i learned about crisis pregnancy centers these are deceptive organizations that do not provide accurate medical advice to pregnant individuals instead many of these crisis pregnancy centers are religious organizations that misinform delay treatment and coerce individuals to carry their pregnancy to term
0: Those evil religious organizations, how dare they encourage women to have their children instead of murdering them?
2: Because what we're seeing here is that it's the predatory nature of these crisis pregnancy centers that offer nothing for women.
0: Crisis pregnancy centers offer nothing for women. I wonder if Representative Schusterman's ever- had a discussion with a woman that's utilized their services and received material help in the form of formula or diapers or the counseling, parental advice, job help that they received. But no, they they provide nothing for women. Not to mention, I don't know, the women that are born rather than aborted, but we'll continue.
2: I'm not a scholar of religions, but... (laughs) No kidding. I... I think that probably the number one part of Christianity that really resonates is empathy and listening and caring. And they're using these tactics. It's, it's predatory.
0: Representative Schusterman, have you listened as the babies have been torn apart alive in their mother's womb? Oof. There's a great deal to break down here, so we'll take each of the claims one at a time. First, let's talk about the scope of the problem that Representative Schusterman has here. She's discussing the 29 crisis pregnancy centers, or CPCs, that operate 80 locations throughout Pennsylvania and receive taxpayer dollars through uh, Real Alternatives. Real Alternatives is a government-funded pro-life social services program, which has provided uh, alternatives to abortion for the last 25 years. Over that 25 years, they receive roughly $4 million on average every year. To put this in perspective, the Pennsylvania state budget this year is over $45 billion. Now, I am for fiscal responsibility, absolutely, absolutely. But just understand the scope of what we're discussing here and ask yourself as we go forward, is this really about fiscal responsibility? The first claim is CPCs only exist to discourage and limit access to abortion. This claim gets a rating of partially true. Why? Because they are contracted by the state to promote life. So of course they're not going to encourage abortion. Now, I would like to know how exactly it is that they limit access to abortion, because I did a little audit of some of the 29 centers across Pennsylvania, and each one of them mentions that abortion is available. Right from the Real Alternatives website, it states, Empowering Women for Life, Life Affirming Pregnancy and Parenting Support Services. Remember, it says, you are in control of your life and the decisions you make For yourself, there are many methods that are used to terminate pregnancy. The cost and type of an abortion procedure is often determined by how many weeks a woman is into her pregnancy. Each one has risks and possible complications. And they go on to give you more information should you want to learn more. Next claim CPCs spread medical misinformation. This one gets a totally false rating. I'll read right from Real Alternatives website. The following information is made available by the Pennsylvania Department of Health and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Another quote All information is based upon materials published by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and the U.S. Center for Disease Control. So if they're quoting these organizations, which they are, it's right on the website, then how exactly are they promoting misinformation? We'll continue. The next claim is that CPCs are performing medical experimentation upon women. That sounds absolutely horrible. What is it they're talking about? Remember a few minutes ago when we were discussing how abortions are conducted? One of the options is a medical abortion, which is conducted up to 11 weeks, consists of taking two drugs to terminate a pregnancy, the first drug administered blocks the hormone progesterone, which causes the lining of the uterus to thin and prevents the embryo from staying implanted and growing because nutrients and oxygen are no longer supplied to the mother. Well, if intervention is sought early enough, it's possible to reverse that by administering off-label, progesterone. And because it's off-label, that's where they're getting away with saying, oh, it's experimental. Now, never ye mind that doses of progesterone are given to women who are having a vulnerable pregnancy and have a threat of miscarriage. That is the level of experimentation that they're discussing here. Next claim, CPTs are sham centers and use deceptive marketing to advertise themselves as healthcare centers. Again, I spent some time on the interwebs, looked at their websites, and there's no such thing. Not all of the CPCs, of course, have medical staff, but there are some that do. For instance, the Lancaster CPC. They have a medical team to include a sonographer, nurse, medical doctor, and maternal fetal medicine specialist. How completely patronizing is this, by the way? They don't believe that women are smart enough to realize whether or not they're walking into a health care provider or a pro-life center that's going to help them manage their unplanned pregnancy. Unreal. Next claim. It is alleged that Real Alternatives is engaged in a kickback scheme with their subcontractors. They act as if the only source of CPC's funding comes through real alternatives, and that's simply not the case. They receive funding from outside donors as well. Lots of it. In fact, what comes through RA is, is just a fraction of, of their budget in many cases. So are these CPCs prohibited from engaging in private contracts and directing their funds as they see fit? Is this really about fiscal responsibility? Where is their outrage over the same actions by Pennsylvania's Planned Parenthood? Pennsylvania Planned Parenthood is reimbursed by taxpayer dollars through Pennsylvania for services provided just the same as CPCs are within the Commonwealth. And yet their website states that they invested in more than $4 million of their funds to reach key voters in 2018. And Planned Parenthood wasn't supporting just any old candidate. They were supporting, you'll never guess it, only Democrat candidates. Again, I ask, is this really about fiscal responsibility, or is this nothing more than a bunch of emotionally immature adults outraged over the fact that there is an organization that challenges their toxic beliefs? I want to conclude this discussion with the testimony of Ms. Kelly Davis, who's the Executive Director for New Voices for Reproductive Justice.
3: We've talked a great deal today around how to curtail their supply of anti-abortion centers, and known as crisis pregnancy centers. But again, um, this is continuing to be a demand issue. As Ohio and West Virginia have um, eradicated access to abortion, we know that, that citizens across the Commonwealth are exp- are experiencing longer than normal wait times, even in Allegheny County, meaning the most marginalized, the folks that are making an hourly wage, the folks that cannot have childcare, the folks who are disabled, the folks that are um, in communities of color are having even more challenges accessing abortion and comprehensive reproductive healthcare, because this actually is not just about abortion. It's about cultural competency and anti racism within all healthcare settings, especially in maternal morbidity and mortality um, and pediatric care. It really hurts to hear about the legacy of medical experimentation, which really started in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with the father of obstetrics and gynecology who conducted his experiments, sans anesthesia on enslaved African women, even though it was available to him at the time, and continues today with what is happening inside of these um, crisis pregnancy centers.
0: I have to stop Ms. Davies right here. Let's set aside her completely inaccurate historical retelling of Dr. Sims, who's considered the father of modern surgical gynecology. Set that aside. Let's Pretend that what she says is actually true here. How dare she suggest that doctors today prescribing progesterone to a woman to reverse the effects of the first dose of a medicinal abortion is at all the same thing as what she just described. She's completely untethered from reality. And let us not even address the hypocrisy of abortions being conducted without anesthesia or pain relief for the unborn child. But we can only
3: address those if we really think about eradicating misogyny, transphobia, and racism inside of all clinical care and also outside of clinical care. Because until we do that, folks will always need to access, they will always be searching uh, online um, and be be, um, influenced by these kind of predatory marketing practices. So I really implore all of us to address some of the root causes in the commonwealth midwives cannot provide medication abortion while they can in multiple other states right they uh, so so many of what is happening um even tuition remission for providers that want to practice in deserts right medical care deserts until we address some of these root causes even if we shut them down they will still find ways to proliferate misinformation and target those who are more marginalized than the rest of the population, which across this state are black women and trans folks.
0: So did any of our fine Democrat representatives rebuke this nut for her tirade? <laughs> no, of course not. Here, take a listen to what Senator Mooth had to say.
1: Kelly, I'm going to craft you a bedazzled. uh, uh, I don't know what the award is for policy hearing. Um, I don't have to create an award (laughs) because I I just I want to say thank you because and all of you uh, really framing this, um, especially for someone who's never, if anyone's listening, has never heard about this topic or this issue. um, It is an important one relative to the conversation around choice uh, and and privacy and consumer protections, transparency of taxpayer dollars. The Commonwealth's failure, as mentioned, to address root causes, to use public dollars to to harm people. And um, as as mentioned, to further enable systemic racism. And uh, I mean, it's really kind of just grotesque, even just the bring to light. And I'm glad you all did the medical experimentation, because it's a, a way that we need to talk about this more so that people understand how extreme this is. And it is happening. And this is the state we live in.
0: No, Senator Muth, your propaganda on display in this hearing is grotesque. Let me break it down. Abortion as a means of birth control doesn't promote a strong sense of self. It says to the woman that you are powerless in the face of your most base desires. You are powerless to say no to unprotected sex. You are incapable of using contraceptives. And your natural instinct to protect your unborn child? It's false and should be ignored. That unborn child, its pain, its welfare, it isn't worth considering. And when taken to its logical conclusion, this ideology says to the woman that she too was nothing when in her mother's womb. This narrative decreases the self. It decreases the value of the life of the woman. This ideology breaks down natural barriers, making it more likely that these women will acquiesce to further abuse. When we don't have a strong sense of self, when we don't abide by boundaries, when we don't defend those boundaries against intrusion, we are vulnerable to abusers within our own family structure, our community, and government. This is the dirty little secret these individuals are working so hard to keep. Empowered women threaten their power, their sense of moral superiority, their ego, and ultimately, their pocketbook. There is some good news, however. November is fast approaching, and these legislators are up for re-election. Vote them out. Senator Katie Muth is being challenged by Republican Jessica Florio, and Representative Melissa Schusterman is being challenged by Republican Sarah Marvin. Both Jessica and Sarah are strong women who will work to empower their constituents. Thank you for joining me. I would love to hear from you. Please submit comments or questions via Facebook at Carmela Esq. or email me at contact at com or call me 302-584-3594. Want to help build the constitutional conservative movement in Chester County? Subscribe to my podcast. It's free and subscriptions help us get the word out. Thanks again.